This Mental Floss podcast is brought to you by the all-new episode of Adam Ruins Everything, airing Tuesday, August 23rd at 10, 9 central on True TV. Hello, I am Jeff Rubin, and this is Misconceptions for Mental Floss, presented by Adam Ruins Everything on True TV. And today, we are going to talk about archiving the internet with Jason Scott. Hey, Jason. Hi there. Jason, before we dig into your work as an internet archivist, I kind of wanted to get a sense of, of your history with the internet. Uh, when do you remember, like the first time you touched the internet? Okay, so I feel like I touched the internet sometime in my first year of college, and I had grown up on bulletin board systems. And I'd gone from bulletin board systems to my father having a very strict rule of you're not going to bring your computer to your first year of school so you're not distracted like you are at home. And what year is this? This is 1988. And so, um, of course, I figured out in late 88, early 89, a way to dial up into a system at MIT that was open for some amount of public use if you knew the right number and knew what you were doing. And you could then be on a very, very, very early internet. So I knew that there was a, you know, interconnected computer and government thing out there that was transferring data and I could get on it. I mean, I'd heard about it before, like some sort of Shangri-La, but I didn't have any access to it. So, you know, basically like 18 or 19 in the late 80s was my first start on an intranet, and it's text only. But even before that, you were on these bulletin board systems. Right. Uh, and for those that aren't familiar, these were sort of like a proto-internet, almost like a local internet that instead of being connected to every other computer around the world was just like run out of a hobbyist basement usually, right? Am I describing well, this correctly? Uh, kind of. I mean, much in the same way that you might say that a horse-drawn carriage is a proto-car. Okay, um, okay. So what, what's a bulletin board system? A bulletin board system is basically you had a home computer, which was pretty crazy, that you had a computer in your house. And it turned out there was a way to connect through phone lines to other computers if you took the time to dial for them and somebody at the other end was waiting for you and everything worked and it kind of – Stood up to the test of the phone line quality, and if it did, you got to spend a lot of money to read things slowly somewhere else. So it was like about as primitive as you can possibly get, but so unlike anything before it that it was just endlessly fascinating, even with it when it was this ridiculous, you know, kind of sticks and 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 stone knives and everything. I think it's probably very difficult for people who are maybe younger who are listening to this to imagine such a thing that to get on the internet you had to dial something up and you had to know a code or even BBSs. And maybe they have some concept that these things existed and uh, that – and maybe you can even picture what it looks like. But what did you actually do once you connected to these things? Like what, what could you do and what, what do you remember about it? Sure. The most complicated or weird thing about it was that these – computers could, with a very few exceptions, only take one person at a time. So you were basically uh, walking up into someone's house through the phone and doing this transaction with their computer by yourself. This is a bulletin board system. Like the yes. host of the bulletin board system could only take one caller at a time. Exactly. So, you know, you might think of it, I mean, you can come up with all these other kind of, you know, metaphors, but but it really was like a bulletin board on someone's front door and you walked up and you put a message on there and then walked away and when you checked the next day if you were lucky somebody had responded to what you had written and I think the one that really lands with people is when I talk about the density of messages and I, I have records from that time because I was collecting them and I will tell you that for some of these bulletin boards they might get 45 or 60 messages in a month, right? So it's a very small group of people who probably know each other and they are writing very simple things to each other. 
And the part of it that's not obvious when you look through the old, old logs or if you go to one of my sites with all this historical material is how much of a physical presence it is. Like it costs money to call anywhere. And so you basically call locally, which means you all know where the pizza parlor is, which means that it probably makes more sense just to say, look, Wednesday night at eight, we're all going to be at the pizza parlor. And so, or more accurately, probably Saturday because of school. And you knew you would go there and meet these people. And then you would write some things to them when you weren't meeting each other in person. And that component has kind of flickered in and out of existence ever since then, right? We've had meetups and they kind of fizzled. And then we would have conferences of every stripe now. So you'd meet people for the year and go back and talk to each other online and it was like that. It was this weird kind of combination of both online and off because online was so slow, offline could beat it. You could walk up to somebody and hand them a floppy disk or talk to them and you'd be able to reach them so much faster than what this online world was doing. Now contrast that now, you know, you can do video, you can do audio, you can send somebody something, you know, in the mail and it'll just work. But, you know, back then... None of that. No multimedia. You're basically talking about text. And uh, so I think that's a component that's going to fade from people's minds in the same way that we don't really think about how hard it was to keep a kitchen going in pioneer days, like just to keep enough wood and have to chop it and have to keep it burning so that, you, you know, all that kind of just fades. And we just say, oh, it was tough back then. Thank goodness. What's on TV? You say you you still have these logs. Like, even back then, were you like, I should start saving this stuff. This is history. Yeah, and I've spent some time kind of working out the psychology of that situation. And the closest I've come up with when I give speeches is that my parents got divorced right at the end of my single digits, around eight or nine. And so that's a very traumatic thing for a kid, no matter how much everybody hugs and says it's okay. And people get different lessons from that. You know, they all take different lessons. And my particular lesson was, wow, I can't depend on anything. Like if it's if it if, if this can just dissolve, uh, why can't everything else dissolve? So if I don't take a copy of something I like or something that interests me next time I call, it's going to be gone, which it often was. And and that particular response, which might have worked itself out just kept getting validated. You know, I'd, I'd go to a bulletin board system and I'd run around and grab everything off it and grab its text and its writings and everything. And I'd come back in two weeks and, and you know, the operator got bored or, or they were taken down or who knows what and their phone number was just never answering. And so I kept those, those floppies because it wasn't very hard to keep them. And, and so I kept them much in the same way one might keep old baseball cards or, or keep old radio parts or stuff. And what ended up happening next was that in my mid-20s, mid to late 20s, I figured, well, everything is on the Internet now. You know, it's 1996, 97. Everything's online. Why do we have to worry about anything? And I was wondering whatever ever happened to those old bulletin boards I was on. And I went to them. And looked on the search engines of the time and there was nothing, like no mention of bulletin boards, much less my favorite ones. And I thought, okay, nobody put these things up. Does, does anybody have these? And so I then went and put them all up on a site and that site became textfiles.com for bulletin board system text files. And, you know, from that, basically that's the move from I'm just some video game uh, art guy and uh, a Unix administrator into I am a historian of technical history and I start attracting people to me to uh, to send me stuff or to add to my pile and so on. So I mean that's kind of like the genesis of it all and everything else has flown out from that in you know what is it though nearly 18, 20 years hence. Was it difficult uh, even though you had the disc, was it difficult to take a disc from the 80s and put it in your computer from the 90s and get text out of it? Luckily, no. It wasn't that difficult at that time because five and a quarter inch floppy disc drives were on their way out. But you could usually be reasonably assured something around the house had them, maybe. And all you had to have was one and you could get them all off it. Obviously, now it's significantly harder 
very significantly harder. But is it doable? Like, if for whatever reason some alternate history unfolded and we had to do it today, obviously we don't have like five and a quarter inch drives for our MacBooks. Like, but do you, as an internet archivist, do you have something you could jimmy rig together? So on my desk here, I have 12 five and a quarter inch floppy drives. 12? All right. 12. One. One, I gotcha. Two, you need a backup. Twelve is, wow, these things tend to give up easy when they're being worked on. Like, they mm. tend to wear out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I never know which one's working well enough and which one's in good enough shape. And so I have a pile of them just in case, and I switch between them. But the so. discs themselves are pretty resilient. Or are they? Like, are discs, was there any, uh, like, CDs, I know, uh, degrade, and, you know, it gets harder and harder to read them as time goes on, even if you take great care of them. Is that true of floppy disks too yeah so basically what it comes down to what what history has told us and believe me if you want to get a bunch of online and and computer historians going just talk to them about the state of media from older computers but i can say that generally if you if you bought junky crappy floppy disks back then they tended to die and there were better ones and it wasn't as much of a crapshoot as it might seem. I mean, you could tell that you'd pick one up and you'd be like, yeah, this is a nice one. This one was made nicely. And ones where you're like, this is awful. This is this thing is this thing's barely holding itself together now. And as I've been transferring data off of these old floppies, I'll, I'll pick one up and I'll be like, yeah, this this one's going to work fine. And it tends to. And then there'll be ones where I'm like, oh, man, this is going to take, you know, 10, 15 reads and you hope one of them sticks enough, and it might not. It might just be dead. Um, and you can tell. I, I mean, audio cassettes were the same way, and CDs are much the same way. Um, there, there were badly made CDs, just like there are badly made um, audio cassettes and floppies. And, and so I've actually been able to pull some good data off of very, very old floppies as long as back then somebody spent the extra dollar per disc and got a really good one. You know, they were anywhere from a dollar to five dollars a piece, and of course, by the end, you're talking a quarter or less, and you'd buy them, you know, in a pack of a hundred. And I guarantee you, those were not the highest quality discs. And so, so you know, it, it, and I mean, we, we do this now, right? I mean, the difference between you can pick up a, a a USB stick now, you know, some little some little thing you plug in and i mean you can pick it up and go okay this this thing this thing barely made it out of the factory in one piece right and and then other ones are certified and have little chips in them to take care of parry i mean we all know this and <clears throat> computers are such an expensive hobby that sometimes people would make very odd choices for saving money you know so you'd have this expensive computer but then you had no money for software so people would pirate software and suffer the consequences of you know poorly done pirated software or they would spend a lot of money on the computer but then get a really junky modem because they couldn't afford a better modem and 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 it kind of feeds that way with like oh i'm going to store all my stuff i make with this expensive computer on this terrible floppy but i'm going to save it on four of them and somehow this will work for me if i spend you know, one third the price, but use four times as many to be sure that I've got it safe. So, so, I mean, it's, it's, you know, looking back, you can see, you know, trends that we still follow today. So when I, I understand that you have this archive of old text files and you put it online and you're an enthusiast and you're talking to other enthusiasts, but when did that turn to, I'm going to start archiving things, the, the present in anticipation of the future? Um, all right, so I I tended to be archiving the present from the beginning, right? I mean, so so right. in the beginning, I'm in a bulletin board system world, and I'm like, this is important. I'm going to grab this. And as time goes on, I would actually um, mail out to companies to this. This one is the least defensible of all of my acts. I would get old computer magazines or get computer magazines in the time when they were new. And you could write in to advertisers using a card system to say, tell me more about your thing. And I'm like 13, and I would circle them all, and I'd say, send all of it to me. <laughs> and I used to get reams of, buy this printer, here's our new joystick, 
uh, uh, here's the newest Atari software. Have you considered financial software for your business? And I kept it all. And again, I've tried to figure out kind of like what drove me at that time to do that. I think part of it was I was a little bit lonely in that particular part of my life. And it was so nice to get mail and the mail would promise you the world. And I kept it. And so I've had it and I digitized it. And so kind of like this trend of like, oh man, if I don't um, do something, you know, it's that like, if, if you sit around and say, well, someone will handle it, chances are you're probably right. But I'm one of those personalities who's the one who is going to handle it. Yeah, you're, you're why we say that. Yeah, exactly. Well, more than you would expect, because now with some modicum of fame that I have, people are like, alert Jason Scott, which is a term for like, a site's going down, something's <laughs> lost, it's been deleted, it's whatever. And I just have this kind of weird reputation of, he'll want to grab a copy. And um, I ended up with a large amount of data for the time. But of course, each time we've traversed in, in what we do, that data has really seemed minuscule. Like the original text file collection, I don't think it went more than 25 or 30 megabytes, maybe. And then by the time textfiles.com is kind of hitting its, like, I've kind of grabbed everything major, it's about a gigabyte. Of just text files. Yeah, it's mostly text files, although it actually has some small amount of artwork and a few other things. But, yeah, it's about a gigabyte. And then uh, go to today, like literally today, and on an average day with the Internet Archive, I'll upload between 200 and 600 gigabytes a day wow. from various sources. So, so now I'm you know, totally on this other track. And, and at some point, I assume, someone will go, oh, that's so cute. He was doing 200 gigabytes a day. That's so cute. Now in our petabyte world, I've always kind of been in this mode of, hey, if you just take a reasonable amount of effort, and especially with a computer that can do a lot of the work for you, you can turn looking back at history into a choice instead of a wish. That's kind of how I've run things. So, you know, grab a million things and then, yeah, history is going to show that, you know, depending on how cynical you are between 800,000 and 999,000 of those things aren't going to be of very much use. But at least you get that choice. Right, right, right. And that's kind of, you know, I mean, I I, um, I have vintage spam from like 1993 to 1998 or something like that. I mean, I grabbed a whole bunch of podcasts when I, when I thought that was a big deal in 2004. And I've done other similar grabs, I, you know, and, and, and some of them have really paid off. And, and it's not been that hard to do, but I wouldn't, you know, recommend this for everybody, but... You know, in my world, it's done that. And, and, and for better or for worse, I've transferred this ethic onto a new generation of folks who recognize that if they don't go out there and grab a copy of that gaming site before it disappears or, or if they don't, you know, pull down and read a video or, 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 or record something or, or whatever, nobody might do it. And then everyone will say, remember that? And everyone will have to say, I sort of do. I wish I could see it again. So... If, 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 if you think of it as a mind virus, I've actually gotten a lot of people infected in the last you know, five or six years. <laughs> so I think this is kind of the core misconception. Our misconception of the day is I mm. think a lot of people think that uh, the Internet is kind of forever. And, like, once you put something on the Internet, uh, it's, it just exists forever and it's just kind of out there all the time. Like, why do – at this point, now the Internet is – is this very mature thing that it's on? Everyone's got three devices that connects to it. Like, uh, why why do we still need to to be archiving things? Like, why do they disappear? So, there's several things going on there, and 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 the bargain, and I've talked about the bargain, was you get to put your information in a huge, massive machine that is everywhere and ubiquitous. And it is trivial to make duplicates of it, and it is trivial to do all sorts of maintenance on it and keep it relatively safe and, and all of that, except when it gets destroyed or otherwise neglected, at which point it is destroyed utterly and for all time. So 
you know, the, the road is much wider and well paved, but there's no guardrails. And so if you, through your own not paying attention or having chosen the wrong home or otherwise, you know, some forces within and some out, out of your control, um, put yourself in a weird position, your data will be utterly lost. Like you won't even get like a burned half copy. You won't even get a, a, a mimeograph that's in reverse. You, you know, you won't be able to get any of that, a faded photograph. Well, what you're going to get is zero. It's gone. The data is gone. And I think that's the hardest thing for people to understand that when they, well, when they end up with their data, they don't think of it as their data. Like they don't think of it as part of them and it is part of them. And, and, and data and online life has now absorbed so much of what we were like granted there's data being generated that was never generated kids in the 50s didn't have logs of how many times they went to their diner and who was with them at the time and of course people didn't take photos of their food to the extent that they do now but on the other hand um letter writing and something as simple as uh, recording letters to your family with an audio cassette or with your new child or using a videotape to record those things. All of that is being rapidly turned into a pure digital experience where at no point is the data really in your control. And so you think of it as still being yours and stored with you, but it's not. And that makes it very easy for a company or a enterprise to provide a service but the downside is that if the enterprise experiences any problem i mean if our water company goes out we know it right we, we can't shower and if our electricity goes out we know it we can't watch tv and if our heat goes out we know it we feel very cold but if our storage goes out, if our cloud dissipates, if our company that turned out to be the only place that had our baby photos goes away, we had no idea that was kind of going on, that we had unwittingly taken all the photos on our phone and placed them somewhere. And part of that is just because if you look at it historically, the internet was a big experiment. Why would you give people guardrails on an experiment why would you get hung up on on like making sure that everything you know there's no there's no data protection laws like we have tenant protection laws and I, I've advocated for those and people hate that of course you know don't screw it up uh, why would you let the government in but I'm like well we kind of put all of our critical services online with no guarantees nothing not even a if it's down, it's got to go to some boring company. Um, the one I've described before is like when your car is towed, your first thought isn't, well, that's it for my car. Better go buy a new one. You know, you you actually know, yeah, there's going to be some rotten place on the edge of town. and It's going to have to pay all this dumb money and I'm going to get my car back. And it would be great. To me, it would be heaven on earth hmm. if your data was gone and you're like, oh, I got to call the data storehouse. Oh, and they're going to want to get a copy of my license and I got to prove my mailing address and then they're going to mail me a USB stick for a 25 or a $50 fee. I'd love that. I would love that junky, jangly, bunch of boring rules over what we have now, which is a company randomly says to you, well, it's August 1st, August 19th, we're going to go away. And then you just wake up on August 20th because you've been away and you're like what what or you find out on August 15th and four days isn't enough time um, I've seen it all I've seen companies announce that they're closing in 12 hours I've seen companies announce they're closing in a year um, I've seen all sorts of variations of that and, and that's how I kind of got into the whole world of archive team this activist group that goes in and tries to duplicate things was out of that feeling of helplessness that people have and and we definitely tapped into something strong because i or archive team will get contacted from people as soon as any rumor or any hint of something going away goes away and um 
and we'll be in there and doing our best and trying to grab copies and making noise the whole way and insulting all parties involved for, for short-sightedness and, <laughs> and silliness and maybe get a good copy. Um, you know, I'm thinking of – there's really like one major example right now of a company where um, they sold it and then it was being announced that it was being shut down and we took a copy – and then they shut it down and then they sold it back to the founder and he used our copy to get all the data back. And that was upcoming.org, which is a uh, uh, kind of event planning site. And they were able to put up all of the events that they had ever hosted or kept track of going back to the first day because we had grabbed all of it. It took a while and it was weird and dumb, but... We did it. We actually brought this thing back from the dead um, from a, a um, bunch of backups onto the original domain name. And uh, it still works to this day as a result. Uh, you know, so it, it, there, ha there have been rare success stories of full resuscitation. And there have been many stories of people getting their stuff back through us. Or I like to think other people not losing their stuff because we got them interested in understanding the the problems behind what they're doing. But the world really wants us to not think about these things. You know, just don't worry about it. Pay money, infinite space, infinite membership. It'll all just work out. And it always does until it doesn't. So that's like a, a case for why a person might need it. Now you're helping individual people, which is wonderful. But is there also like a broader... Uh, reason to save these for history for for posterity because these are important documents from like the dawn of the internet really oh absolutely i mean i tend to care about the human side of it very heavily only because we have such a huge disenfranchised group of users on the internet people who are just kind of being thrown into this as a requirement for being alive now like you're not gonna be able to do your taxes or be able to do things with your car or keep track of work without this computer in this online world and yet they are completely left uninformed as to the nature of the environment they're in so i'm always focused on that but but on a greater sense um in terms of like you know what's going on with the world i think that all of our culture has gone online and by putting it all together and storing it um, we're only getting better at sifting through that information and we're getting much better at finding what we want or deriving connections or, um, you know, I can think of some examples, but they're all really nerdy. Is this a nerdy podcast or is this a more yeah. high level? No, it's as, it's as nerdy as we can make. Uh, I mean, okay. I don't so know that everyone is, is as familiar with like technical specifications, but I think that they're all huge dorks. Okay, well, let's go with that's, that. Let's that's go with what that. I, how I perceive you, listener. Okay, so... So here's one that I thought was brilliant. Um, there's a site called telehack.com, and it, it's an incredible labor of love. If you can think of when you pass a tourist trap and you just see that they've made these massive dioramas out of, out of clay that like seem to go on for like half a mile, and you're like, oh, my God, some guy just kind of worked on that for 20 years. In the same way, this thing is loaded with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of old computer experience. You know, like you can go in and play old text games or interact with people or read text files. He absorbed a lot of my text files and so on. And, and he'd done all this crazy work, right? And one of the things he did was he went through the old Usenet archives, the old internet messaging boards. And when you used to post, it used to say what computer you were on, what shared computer. Uh, uh, something that's kind of lost now is that Generally, to get onto the internet, you didn't. Your computer didn't go onto the internet. Your computer went onto a computer that was on the internet. So, so it's an important distinction. But you might have a machine. The machine's name might be, you know, Camel, and you would connect to Camel via a phone line. Now, Camel's on the internet, and you 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 go through places and look at online sites and everything else through that machine. And is that because the initial computer, the one you're actually touching, didn't have the capability? Right. It had to be given a service. Now, obviously, at some point, they figure out how to set up relatively dumb ports 
to connect to the internet directly through your computer. And then eventually your computer is basically able to do everything because that computer that we, like I called it camel, that's pretty much your cable modem now. Like your cable modem is pretty much your connection to the internet. You, you go through it and so on. But it used to be it was a computer somewhere else that was shared. Well, anyway, um, when you posted on these message boards, it would say where you were. Like, oh, you posted on April 2nd at 4 p.m. And you were logged into Camel. Okay. This guy went through thousands of messages and then figured out what computers there had been and who was logged into them at any given time. He just kind of reversed all of that information pulled it backwards and then you could go to that computer on this service and look at it and it would say oh these people were logged in they haven't logged in since blank um you know this is what this person was like because he was able to kind of look at the fingerprints the wrapping the the discarded gum wrappers of of being online and produce this pretty amazing accurate evaluation of 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 who was using the internet back back then which is to me brilliant and and i can guarantee you never once was this ever the intention of this original information like i i love when somebody comes along and uses old logs or old writing or anything else to start to say okay when did people start using this word when did this concept come up? You know, one day I tried to figure out when did we start using the term red eye for a flight? And I was able to find out from a combination of congressional transcripts, news articles, and um, a few other kind of scant book resources to find out that it was an, a military term in like the 60s. And then military guys were doing um, hearings and they would start to use the phrase, yeah, I was on a red eye flight. Like flights are happening all the time now and people are just flying on them. And so they would start to use the term red eye flight. And now that regular people are flying in the early seventies, they start to use some of those military terms, just like people now use what used to be only the computer terms of the most nerdy administrators or computer users of the seventies and eighties, like log on, or, uh, uh, you know, telecommute or anything else like that. Like all those words sifted. And I got that from this very messed up, you know, scattered set of information resources. And, and we don't even know what people are going to pull out of today's Facebook postings or, or today's, you know, uh, blogs and, and, and be able to go from there and figure out, wow, this was important to them. Had no idea. You know, so... I am a huge advocate of what I call sideways value. Like you just don't know what you have. And someone says, um, well, why do you want 1000 pictures of this area? And the answer is I can figure out how often it rained and how much it rained and, and what things looked like when they were wet. And I can figure out who tended to come out and, and what, what else from all that. It's not just a bunch of, you know, dumb picture data it's got real value going forward so and then absolutely when you think about that it is really valuable historical data that will have value for generations potentially like uh does that affect the way you store it like presumably you want this data to outlive you and us right yeah i mean absolutely there is a uh very big if in terms of storing now if you talk to a lot of professional archivists, they'll get very cranky about phrases like digital dark age, mostly because um, there's a sense of, like, we're doomed. And it's not that we're doomed. Um, we tend to be piecemeal in how we do things, and sometimes we run into problems. But um, with maintenance, with some amount of effort, uh, with luck, and with the usual problems of, um, you know, just stuff breaking and, and so on um, – we're going to lose things, of course, and we just accept that. But um, it's not terminal and it won't be universal because people do recognize it. 
And so what's going on is that when you're going out and grabbing hundreds of gigabytes, you know that some of these aren't going to survive the trip. A bunch of things are going to happen, you know, electricity, uh, strange mechanical failures, uh, mispriority, a bad memo, and then you're going to lose it. Okay, that's fine. But you do your best and you make it something you, you know, worked on in your life. And you hope people will get it later. You know, you put labels under every photo and you hope that in 50 years people can still read the labels. I mean, if you go back and look at um, historical materials from like 100 years ago, um, it's absolutely a case of, um, of like, this is amazing. Wow, look at all this information here. And then other times you're like, well, why, did, why did they think this was a good idea? And you, you kind of derive information and value from it, right? So we have a bunch of old newspapers because we knew newspapers were interesting. And we have a whole bunch of old magazines. I'm a really big fan of magazines because they have to kind of like indicate what's up and what's going on in a, in a, in a bouncy, informative fashion to keep readers engaged. And uh, so, so you can derive all sorts of information from it. Um, you know, with, with magazines, you're talking like a 20 or 30 year cycle, but you know, with a newspaper, you can be going back a hundred years and be like, this is what things like, like, here's a really good example. It used to be a big deal and illegal for women to wear pants in the beginning part of the 20th century. All right. So, so you can find these articles about it. Like a woman wore pants to court and gets arrested because she's in contempt of court for wearing pants. And like... You wouldn't even know that happened, right? You'd be like, oh, there was women's suffrage and there was this. But you wouldn't, like, know. You couldn't wear pants. That was, like, a major deal. And you can find articles where, in some cases, they got clemency for wearing pants because, oh, she's a widow. <laughs> she doesn't know any better. And all that would be gone. Like, we would just not have that. And we would end up with this kind of smooth over, yeah, they used to not be able to vote. Now they can vote. We'd end up with some summarized, smoothed over, no impression of the experience, the day-to-day to people without this information. And pro or con, a lot of it's digitally online. And so the fires will be different and the loss will be different and the density of data lost will be different. But it's still going to, you know, still have that same weight when it survives. And I, I do believe a lot of it will survive. Of the set of text files... Uh, is there one or is there a type of text file that you would kind of direct someone who was interested in this to go read to get a sense of what internet culture or what BBS culture uh, was like at the time? Do you have like a favorite one or two that you always direct people to? Well, what I did, because I know that there's like 55,000 of them. And of course, what, what are people going to do? And so there's actually a link, uh, textfiles.com slash 100. And I chose 100, which sounds like a lot, but it's not so bad because you can actually kind of like glance at my descriptions. And I write a description next to each one going, here's why I think this is important. So what are some that made that 100? Um, there's one that's basically a, a kind of a listing of bulletin board systems in the 914 area code in like 1984. So it's like here's kind of how they would be clumped up and what people would name them and so on. And then there would be one that I particularly was always happy about called To All Who Dare, the black box. And it's about a phone circuit modification so that you don't get charged if somebody calls your house or they don't get charged. And it's, it's a dumb trick. It doesn't work anymore. And it basically keeps the voltage of the phone up so that your phone keeps ringing. So you're talking through the ringing and the phone company thinks you're still ringing. Now they're going to get suspicious when you ring for like 40 minutes, but this was this file that's presented as this mysterious, amazing forbidden knowledge. You know, a lot of the same juice we get out of Easter eggs. Now we say, Oh, there's an Easter egg in grand theft auto. Um, you know, so that's a mysterious, it's underground, isn't that crazy kind of sense. And I think that's a vital part of the text file experience is you feel like you've stumbled on to hidden knowledge. And I, a bunch of the files are like that. A few of them are like really weird 
off-color stories to show like kind of like what juveniles would write in terms of fiction or 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 um who would write these weird kind of self-referential living in a bulletin board system world thing you know what i mean mm-hmm. so i mean it's 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 like a i always tried to like put together a set of files that you would um like derive not just like what's written in them because information wise they're pretty out of date but the sense of what it must have been like to find this file the first time right 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 like, like a sense of wonder right like 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 the first time people you know who were you know exploring must have first encountered niagara falls like that must have been insane to have this you know the, the niagara falls we see is actually run at half its regular volume it was this weird thing they did they divert it for electricity so we don't even see the niagara falls these people must have seen they must have like gone through all this woods and everything else and all this danger and they come upon this ridiculous waterfall and the story i'm telling you here is true but it's like to give you that sense of like Wow, late at night, I'm calling this place, and there's a there's a bunch of files in some section, and I don't even know what that means. And I go look at it, and it's promising me the world. And and I go into one, and it says, okay, don't tell anybody, but if you move here, twist this wire, do this, you will have knowledge that nobody else will have. And, and that was a lot of the draw for a, certainly a young uh, teenager – you know, that sense of strength and power. Um, I w- so it's, you know, like that. It's like, you know, really trying to, like, give people an evocative sense. You know, I made a, a documentary about bulletin boards based on the fact that I had done this. And I went out and interviewed hundreds of people. And what's that called? It's called BBS The Documentary. Um, and it's bbsdocumentary.com. And I have, you know, hundreds of interviews with people. And a lot of them, you know, when I'm interviewing them, I might get a couple things out of them about the technical aspects of, oh, yeah, I got this up and running and I use this kind of a modem. But as soon as they start to talk for any period of time, they talk about people, friends they met, um, loves they picked up, uh, controversies, uh, fights. You know, that's what people derive. Like all these artifacts are the bones, but the human beings and their feelings are like where we really were ourselves. And I, and I hope – I hope somewhere along the stacks of textfiles.com that people will derive that value from it. And, and similarly from all the other things we're, we're putting together, you know, not just here's a bunch of websites or here's a bunch of, um, you know, text files or whatever, but to actually kind of start to understand what that world must have been like. Like it's weird now we're seeing people nostalgic for the, the 1990s and they're starting to put that together. And I can remember when people were nostalgic for the 1970s and, of course, people were nostalgic for the 40s. But, you know, as time goes on, we, we turn those older eras into caricatures of themselves and we take from them the parts we liked. You know, the zoot suits, the, the unusually large cars, the amazing dance moves. Right. But we don't go into like, you know, I don't know, institutional racism or random violence or the fact that people were getting diseases for which – they had one name for what we now call 70 different diseases, and you died of it. You know, what's he got? Consumption. What's he got? You know, the cough. And that's it. That's all we knew. That's what he died of, the cough. And, and, and um, you know, we take what we want. So people will come back to this, and they'll take what they want, and they'll benefit. Um, I'm sure we, as the people living through it, wouldn't recognize that. I, I wonder, as uh, an Internet historian – if there's something you recognize about like the present day internet and I guess the difference – I mean first of all, when you look at some of these text files, do you see things that you know maybe give or take a few cultural specifics feel like modern day internet or does it feel like it's from something else entirely? The thing that's really kind of neat is a good written file is a good written file. Right, like a 50 – like books don't go out of date. You know? Yeah. Books still like, work. Like there might be some weird things in terms of the language – and the, the technicals. Um, and, of course, a lot of text files are very short little, like, scrawls. They might as well be texts themselves for how well they're written. But then somebody will write something 
that is just out of time. Um, they'll write something that is like, uh, here's how to make the new Coke formula and get the old Coke formula out of it. Or here's some thoughts on World War II or writing or how to do real honest, you know, putting something together like in your home or electronically uh, or going camping or surviving or whatever. You know, like these well-written, top-to-bottom, beautifully created texts that are just passed around out there. And they're living. Like, they're living now. Like, they're still funny. They're still well-written. They still apply. And, 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 and so when it's good, when it's well-written, I mean, um, when I had to read The Scarlet Letter, um, The Scarlet Letter is it's an okay book, but what really fascinated me was the foreword because he writes about his coworkers, and it's a blog entry. It's in every way a blog entry because he's basically saying, yeah, I worked on this book and so on, and I have this coworker and this man – He's not a great worker, but he can tell you down to the smell what all of his previous meals were like. And you can see him reliving the meal every time. It's like this long thing in the foreword about, like, my coworkers, what's up with them? And it is so timeless in its own way because it's just this long written thing. And I'm like, we still write like this. We still go off on these tangents and, and pieces of, of, of what it's like where we are right before we straighten our shirt collar and get back to the you know back to the job of writing um and so i really find a timelessness in many of the really well-written text files well, i mean there's a bunch of bad ones but there always will be many of them are like obviously written for a very utilitarian purpose like um um Soft docs are a good example. These were where people would pirate a game, and of course you want people to be able to play the game, and so they would kind of write up a, a non-flowery version of the manual information, like basically the keys, the names of the levels, and anything else you had to type in, and that was it. So it just goes soft docs for, you know, whatever, you know, um, uh, Whistler's Bay, and oh, Whistler's Bay, press up, down, left, right, uh, press S for this, press T for this, uh, there are five levels. You know, and that would right. be it. And those can, of course, unless you're specifically looking for those games, um, can be like really dull to read. And and there's other ones that are very much like, here's this piece of ham radio equipment. Here are the nine things it does. And that's just somebody filling the space with um, a small piece of information. But then you'll have somebody who will write like, adventures in ham radio <laughs> and then it'll be this amazing well-written beautiful piece that is uh like i said timeless when you get something like that and you know the way i designed textfiles.com and the reason that it still looks like it does is because i had always wanted it to be what i was looking for which was like hey what happened um um you know uh I'm trying to think of a of a like a really solid one that really struck me, but but you know, we don't um, we don't deal with things like television schedules anymore in the way that we used to. Like they're not as hard written, and it used to be that you know you were gonna see the show at 8 p.m. on Tuesday because that was your only choice, and in these articles you'll see things written and a reference to that like i'm running home and and somebody now might not get it i mean i mean i i thought i had read the sherlock holmes's you know to death and it wasn't till much later that there was this kind of annotated sherlock holmes that explained that in the old days the mail came between 6 and 14 times a day for various parts of london like they had to. That was the big communication network. So Sherlock Holmes will put a letter outside knowing it will get to the recipient before lunch and the recipient will respond immediately and he'll get the answer at the end of lunch and he can then walk out at two and meet the guy. And if you're reading it, you don't notice that's what's going on. You're like, well, that's a weird science fiction-y thing. And it's not. It's just gone. We don't have six times a day mail delivery. 
And we don't have CB radios as a big deal. And we don't have pay phones being your only refuge and maps from AAA or from a local gas station being your only GPS. We don't have that. And it's in these files weaved in. And so in that way, there's a bit of a magical sense to it. When the historians of the future go back into these files, and they will, like this really is like a very uh, rich historical thing that you're preserving. Uh, what what do you think they'll, I guess it's impossible to predict, but do you have any thoughts on what what do you think they'll find or what do you think they'll be going for? I can go by what there has been and what we tend to do. I mean, or what I've encountered when people come to me. And first problem, of course, is that a lot of people, they want to see the past through a specific lens. I don't just mean the lens of, of a bias and it's now 2020 and I'm looking at 1970. I mean the bias of like having really tough questions and then trying to use the data to answer them. And I can think of some examples, like, for instance, someone might say, hey, which of your text files were written by minorities? Because I'm doing a study of minorities and the online experience of the 1980s. And I'm like, I don't know how much I can help you. I don't know how much of that metric was saved. Or someone might say, which ones originated in California? Or... Which ones are there where people use these kind of terms? And you say, well, I mean, we could dump them all into a big slushy pile and do a search for that term and variations and maybe. But they're coming in with this proof they want to do. Like, I am going to tell, you know, the experience of, of, of the, the, the Chicago experience to the online world. Or... I'm going to prove that when we, um, the longer we use computers, this aspect of humanity changes. So I want samples from 1970, 1980, 1990 of how we integrate with the computer in this way to prove this. And the metadata is just not there. And so either the person has to do an awful lot of reading or they have to kind of invent a sample set and say, I'm just going to look for everything that has the word Chicago in it, whatever's there. And they're probably going to miss some specific pieces, right? Um, so those people are a big audience because they want to look through the corpus for the purposes of proving a point, filling out a thesis, and getting a degree. And then there's people who are trying to prove a point to each other. And we see this now in a very toxic political time, you know, where they want to see somebody say something off color when they're 21 and they're 41 now and running for office. Or we want to see uh, a weird photo or a strange statement or an unusual drawing or, a, you know, off-putting description. And then from that build a case or a, a declaration. That's another way, right? That's another, you know, you look at it and you say, okay, there's all these biases built in. You know, I mean, basically people with money are the ones who have computers for a long time. So that's the culture. It tends to be suburbia uh, who use the, the home computers. They're sold in suburban stores. Um, you know, India doesn't really have BBSs till the early 90s. For instance, um, you don't get... Um, Australia, they were illegal until one guy came up with a way to get around it. And so they were kind of underground for years because you were not supposed to hook anything up to your telephone. And this guy published a circuit and promptly left the country, which I liked. So I got to interview him. He lived in California. Um, you know, so there was there's all this stuff that's kind of baked in and we're going to wade through it. And whether or not we derive value will kind of be how willing we are to dig deep. And it's a certain kind of person who digs deep. Um, they'll, they'll find the value. But if they don't, then they're going to miss a lot of what really went on. What's so cool and what's so interesting about your work isn't just that you're saving these things, but that you've made them like accessible and searchable for anyone in the world. How important is that like, to the archival effort that you actually make them um, also something that people can access? 
So that was the number one reason I did it was that I wanted it that you went in and you could wander among the stacks and you wouldn't have to deal with dial up and you wouldn't have to deal with waiting for it to come to your computer and you wouldn't have to call all around the country. Like you could walk among it and go, hey, so what what did everyone do about rock lyrics and, and what kind of weird stuff was written? And, and I have a memory of a file or I'm going to browse through the humor section and see if any of this is funny anymore. And sometimes you get hit with this one. Um, there's one, for instance, that I thought was interesting. Uh, there's a weird thing with like Reddit and a lot of these places where somebody will link to one of my text files like it's new. Like he'll just link to it with no context of like, read this. And it'll be funny. And on my site, I'll get 50,000 people visiting in like one day because they're all like, this is hilarious. And then eventually somebody's like, you know, this is like 20 years old, right? Like the kid in this has to be like a dad now. He might be a granddad. <laughs> yeah. And 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 uh, people are like, oh, here's the flaws I find with it. You know, da, 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 da. And it's like, yeah, that's true. If he was writing it in a word processor and not a single line at a time text entry box on a bulletin board system at two in the morning, he probably would have done that. And right. so on. And, and, and watching it like come flaring up into the public eye is just completely surreal. And it just survives for a little while in that weird kind of, you know, and then some people are like, this isn't real or I'm skeptical or this is a fake and whatever. And I'm like, ah, I'm the one who put it in there. I'll tell you it's not. And that's like one of those things which I think is funny is that now we are so kind of inured against um, conspiracy and the potential for people to create false histories that nobody trusts anything now. You know, they're all just right. like, wow, that's just completely fake. That was made recently. And I'm like, oh, I'm the one who actually grabbed that from the bulletin board in 1982. Um, and But when I'm gone, um, you know, as they say, how will you prove provenance? And the answer is not easily. Do you still have those floppy disks? I think I do. I think I do. I, I bet must. you do. I'm betting I bet you I do. do. I bet they're unreadable. Um, but I must have them shoved somewhere. I have a very large shipping container. Seems in like my... you'd be a poor historian if you didn't, really. It'd be weird for me to have thrown them out. Um, maybe something happened. You know, like I could totally see uh, an error being made. Like I moved houses and somebody who didn't know any better threw it out. And I never because they're noticed. five and a quarter inch floppy disks, and they assume you'd have no reason to keep them. Maybe. I mean, one of the things that I think is always hilarious is um, when I left um, my dad's home to go to college. My dad threw out my computer because I was gone, right? And on it was like a hard drive full of obviously unique things that I didn't have copies of elsewhere. And in the interim, I don't know, twenty years, my dad has seen my star grow as like the guy who keeps history and you know the historian he's like i'm really sorry about that <laughs> you know feels like he threw out you know leonardo da vinci's early sketches or threw out like thomas edison's childhood scrawlings on how to do a light bulb or something it's just oh you're famous for saving things and i threw all your stuff out oh my god that, that's maybe you're the tragic story in my origin story how about that yeah 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 that's how i prefer to think of it well you still saved plenty I love the work you're doing. How can people, I think we've mentioned it a few times, but just in case people are just zoned out and are just coming back. Sure. People want to roll up their sleeves, check this stuff out for themselves. Where can they find uh, all this great work you've preserved? So the bulletin board system stuff, that's at um, textfiles.com. And from there, there are links to, you know, my weblog, ASCII, which is what it's called. And, and there's a link to my bulletin board system documentary. And there's links to other projects I've done of saving history. And I work for the Internet Archive as a, 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 a self-made title, which is um, Free Range Archivist, which is where I just kind of go out and make connections and save things. Archive.org, an absolutely wonderful resource, unbelievable resource. Yeah, sending people to archive.org, it's a way of saying, like, like I live in Boston, so visit Boston. You know, <laughs> yeah, kind of totally. But, um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do a lot of work at archive.org these days. I, I will you know, put up radio shows and magazines. And I'm kind of trying to save the efforts of others to save. Um, like just today I put up um, 25 hours of rave mixtapes 
from 1988 to 1994 that this one DJ made. And, you know, we put it up. So it's like lots of interestingly recorded off of cassettes, rave music, rave and acid and dance and house. And it's neat. And I don't know what the world's going to do with that, but it's there. And um, that was today. You know, among who other knows things. what tomorrow will bring. Yeah, tomorrow might be a everything from uh, um, menus from restaurants long gone all the way through to like some video game that somebody made ten minutes ago. So that's the fun of it. Well, Jason, I admire the work. Thank you for doing it, and thank you for uh, stopping by and telling us all about it. No problem. This mental floss podcast was brought to you by the all new episode of Adam Ruins Everything. Airing Tuesday, August 23rd at 10, 9 central on True TV.